HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're bringing you four stories about lost and found culinary treasures. We are searching for what will be lost, and we're trying to rejuvenate it. What we try to do is collect these sourdoughs that contribute to the biodiversity of sourdough in order to store them, to document them, and be able to preserve them for the future. It's bringing back the history and just being part of that time that just, it's, there's nothing like it. You yeah. know, there's, there's nothing like it. When fame comes late, uh, I'm sure it's just as sweet as when it comes earlier. Tune in to this week's episode of Meet in Three. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. And on today's episode, it may seem like a modern-day adage, but eat food, not too much, mostly plants, has long been part of the Pollen family credo. You may want to credit Michael Pollen in defense of food for the quote, but his inspiration was long bestowed by his mother, Corky, and adopted by his sisters, Tracy, Dana, and Lori, since their teen years. So mostly plants, this cookbook is, is a flexitarian's treatsy uh, full of skillet-to-oven recipes, sheet pan suppers, and one-pot meals that hopes to democratize legumes and grains in place of meat at the center of the plate. So welcome, all the pollens. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this is quite a pollen family table, having you all here in Roberta's at the same time. And it's such a great thing to see a family that not only cooks together, eats together, but writes cookbooks together. Uh, I'm assuming food has always been this core and foundational thing about how you were raised. What were the first meals or recipes that any of you remember eating or cooking with all the pollens in attendance? I think that it's quite different than the way that it is now, but especially from my point of view, because I, I remember my favorites, and it was always a meat centerpiece in the middle of the table. Usually my favorite was roast beef with a Yorkshire pudding and then 
maybe a broccoli hollandaise. It was always always very gourmet, and um, but it was definitely very meat centric at the very like in my early childhood is what I remember. Well, I'm assuming Corky, you, you were a child of the '40s and '50s. That meat was so much at the center of the place because of the price of things. It hadn't been industrialized and, and, and cheapened to something else. So what were some of the first meals you remember eating as a kid? Well, um, my mom, first of all, was a fabulous cook, so whatever she made was absolutely wonderful. Um, I think we ate a lot of chicken at that time uh, and uh, a lot of roast beefs. Uh, that she would make, and always uh, almost a French kind of um, slant to them. Uh, She was also awfully good with vegetables. My father was in the produce business, so we had a large range of vegetables that were not that common at that time, like asparagus and broccoli and and, uh, artichokes. So you had the inroads to the produce. That's right. always a good thing to have. It used to be Mary the Butcher, but now it's Mary <laughs> the Farmer. Um, I, I was also reading that much of the meals that you had growing up, too, were not only these big proteins like leg of lamb, uh, fried herring on Sundays, but offal meat, too, sweetbreads and tongue, um, which I find quite delicious and are quite nutritious. But most of that's moved to steaks and more skeletal cuts. So uh, the shift of... Even meat has has made, uh, you know, our eating habits different. Yes, my mom made a lot of awful um, foods <laughs> when I was <laughs> And they were up. awful, yeah. <laughs> in my no, opinion. <laughs> I loved them. I really loved uh, all of them. And sometimes I sort of miss those because they're hard to get, uh, actually buy right now. Some of them I think they wouldn't even serve or, or uh, cut anymore. Um, but, uh, I, yes, I think that a lot of the meats have become a lot more common than the ones that I had when I was growing up. So I heard the pushback from all the sisters about Oval at the center of the table. Uh, you know, your mother is a, such a stylish person, is a style icon in, in whom she wrote for and what she wrote. Um, did you just not see Oval as a fashionable thing when you were growing up? Uh, well, we never really had that. Um, but I must say... Being a daughter of Corky and her cooking every night, we were so lucky. Um, you know, we just couldn't wait. When she'd say, it's dinner time, you know, we were so excited to run to the table. And she really was, and still is, of course, an extremely creative cook. And as Tracy said, you know, Yorkshire pudding with roast beef, broccoli hollandaise. Um, I remember eating artichokes, and we'd have a friend over, and they'd be like, I've never heard of that. And no one in the neighborhood ate artichokes, but we did. So we all feel, I think, very lucky, and we've just learned so much in terms of cooking from Corky. I've heard roast beef come up a couple times. And who is it, who is <laughs> it that had the story that ate a roast beef sandwich en route to Martha's Vineyard? Yes, <laughs> I know that is that Route One. That's Lori. Yeah, <laughs> Kelly's roast beef, because I, I know that strip very well because I turned vegetarian in college oh, over wow. a very similar occurrence. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah, that one bite can do it. And I was in the back of a jam-packed station wagon, filled with there were four children, two parents, a dog or two, a cat or two, one year a pig. And we'll, uh, we'll get to this yes. in a second. 
and just driving the car, biting into a roast beef sandwich, and just taking a bite and trying to, you know, pull away the bread. And there was the a bounce back, the bounce back <laughs> ligament. And I said, "That's it. It just that that was what did it for me." Yeah. And then who was it said no more after a pig became part of the family? That was me. <laughs> um, yeah. So I write about that in mostly plants. And um, Michael, our brother slash son. Um, he loved pigs, and he would collect them. We'd go on trips, and he had ceramic pigs and metal pigs and, and just was obsessed with them. And one day, our father brought home a pet baby pig, this cute little white pig who lived... We lived on Long Island at the time, so he lived in Michael's dresser drawer. And we just... And I was so attached to this pig. I mean, we'd feed her milk from a baby bottle. Her name aptly was Kosher. <laughs> and, um, and I was a big meat eater when I was that age. Um, but I think over time, and I loved bacon. And over time, I think the idea of you can love and become so attached to an animal and then at the same time, you know, eating bacon and eating meat, it just sort of was this internal struggle for me. And when I got a little older, teenager, and Tracy and Lori decided to become vegetarians, after that, being near them and them not eating meat and me eating meat, I was like, I can't, I just can't do this anymore. So I gave it up. <laughs> so Dana, Lori, you two are vegetarians today. Yes, that's right. And now Tracy, where do you stand? So... First, I just want to say one thing about kosher, because Dana said it was hard to eat bacon, having kosher, but kosher did enjoy bacon. It's a little... Yeah, the cannibalistic. Yeah. 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 So that's yeah. sad. Um, I was vegetarian for from the time I was about 15, straight through my first pregnancy, and easily through my first pregnancy, and then I was pregnant with twins for my second pregnancy, and... I don't know what it was. I think it was just the combination of needing an enormous amount of protein and an enormous amount of iron. I just couldn't sustain it on this vegetarian diet. And I went from being completely vegetarian, I mean, to the point where I would ask how everything was made, to, as my husband lovingly likes to say, I could take down like a, a cow, with a, like, a, like a lion in the wild. I, I just went ravenous for meat. And I just couldn't get enough, and I hadn't eaten it for so long. And so that sort of lasted through my pregnancy. And then afterwards, I went back to being vegetarian for a while, but I realized that I didn't have to be as rigid as I was about it, and that I could eat it when I felt like eating it, which is, you know, not the majority of the time. So I'm truly flexitarian, and I eat mostly vegetarian and I eat sometimes I'll eat fish or chicken and, and very occasionally I'll eat beef. And Corky, you're about twice a week vegetarian. Yes, yes. So let, let's define what this word flexitarian is uh, because I've heard pescatarian. Uh, someone even mentioned in the book avolactotarian, which is what egg and cheese. But flexitarian, you know, apropoly, gives you a lot of flexibility. Um, so what would you, if someone had never heard the term, define flexitarian as? Um, well, I'd, what I'd say is that flexitarian is you're you're sort of changing the ratio of the meats and the and the vegetables or plant based foods on your plate. So for me, and I think it's different for everybody, and what's so nice about 
eating this way is that it can it can be whatever works for you but it's that you eat everything but you're primarily eating a plant-based diet so i'm i personally am primarily vegetarian but i have the flexibility of eating anything if that's if it works better yeah. Is there an actual ratio? Is it like one piece of bacon to three pieces of kale, <laughs> one pig to, you know, a shrub of something? <laughs> no, there's no ratio yeah. here. Uh, and the good thing is you can um, go a couple of days and eat vegetarian, just plants, and then maybe you have just an urge the next day for beef or fish or chicken. So that day you could eat all of that, and then the next day you could mix it up, have lots of your plants and vegetables, and a touch of fish or chicken. It was very interesting reading this book, um, and whoever coined the term intermittent carnivore, genius. (laughs) But in this book, you forget sometimes that it is a flexitarian cookbook because the vegetables are the star, such a central part. Um, whereas it's very much the opposite in the American, you know, uh, diaspora. Uh, what other cultures have you drawn from that might see meat or flexitarianism or veganism, vegetarianism differently than we do? Go ahead. <laughs> um, I think that flexitarian diet is often equated with the Mediterranean diet because there's such an emphasis there on um, a lot of vegetables that they take up the centerpiece of your plate, healthy fats, a lot of beans and legumes. And I think a way that people can visualize this flexitarian thing we're talking about is, you know, the old, um, the old, you know, um, guidance from, you know, food, you know, nutritionists was that half of your plate was protein. Protein was like so big and important, and the other half was divided between your starches and your vegetables. And now the focus is half of your plate should be the greens. And the protein is then just a smaller portion, like a quarter. And we get protein from, from plants. We get protein from legumes, beans, nuts, seeds. There's a fact in there that says replacing 3% of your dietary protein from animal products with products or proteins from grains reduces the risk of death. (laughs) Why wouldn't you take that advice? I mean, it seems so obvious. I I always try to reduce my risk of death every single day. But being a flexitarian, too, also decreases the risk of type 2 diabetes, reduces cancer, heart disease, improved cholesterol levels. It is healthier. Yes. I mean, why, why aren't people doing this just because of the health aspects? Well, everything you read uh, in these days just points out how healthy a plant-based diet is. So it seems strange uh, not to go along with it. It is easy to do. In fact, in our book, we make uh, eating plant-based foods so easy and uh, it's just healthier for you and healthier for the world. So why not do it? I mean, carbon footprint alone. You have another statement in here that says if everyone in the U.S. went vegetarian for just one day, we would save over 100 billion gallons of water. I mean, it, the, these are 
factual facts. This is real yeah. stuff right Big here. Um, aside from the food looking delicious, sounding delicious, uh, the, the core of this argument isn't just we cook together, we eat together, but there's a larger we in this world. We have a responsibility. And, um, you know, first and foremost, everybody has a responsibility to themselves to make sure that they're healthy and that their family is healthy. But we have a greater responsibility to this planet that we're slowly, you know, killing. And it would be so much easier if we all came together and just did our part and everyone would benefit from it. But the other thing, too, when you talked about, you know, why wouldn't everybody just eat, you know, mostly plants. The one thing that we really discovered is that you get so many enormous health benefits from being vegetarian, but you get the exact same amount of benefits for being almost vegetarian or mostly vegetarian. Let's talk about this from a price standpoint too, because I think that's an interesting thing. Often it comes to economics and, you know, even in food deserts, what people have access to. So on the access and economics scale of things, how easy is it to be a flexitarian? I mean, vegetables are so much cheaper than meat. And I mean, you know, hands down. So if, you know, economically, it makes so much more sense. Um, also, you know, we say, go ahead, eat meat. If you can eat the grass fed, well, that's better for your health and the environment. And when you eat meat, eat a little bit less. And if you're cutting down, say, to once a week or twice a week, well, then hopefully you'll have, you know, you can sort of afford the good, the grass-fed, which tends to be more expensive than non-grass-fed. And more flavorful. I think and much more flavorful. Flavor is such a big part of this discussion as well, because what right. you're giving people in this cookbook are also the keys to be able to make delicious things, flavorful things that aren't using meat as that substitute for, you know, satiation. Right. It's all about deliciousness, health, and hopefully sustainability, those three things. And I love that you also put forward the fact that we're in a day and age not only where access and economics have changed, but there are new legumes and grains. Uh, uh, if I said quinoa 20 years ago, would anyone have known what that is? Um, yeah. I even know some people that see that word and can't pronounce it today. Yes. <laughs> Lentils, farro. Uh, what is it about these differing, this, this variety of grains that changes the way you cook vegetables? Well, I think that, and we, we show this in the book, that we use a lot of grains and legumes. And sometimes we give the, um, the choice that, you know, here we say, cook up, you know, two cups of your favorite grain. It might be farro, quinoa, wild rice, brown rice. Um, we also use chickpeas a tremendous amount. Yes, the, I have dog-eared the Parmesan chickpea <laughs> croutons multiple so, times. Those are like crack food. Yeah. So chickpeas are so great. You could make your own or you can just open, you know, some cans of organic. And we use them in so many dishes. We use them in lieu of croutons on salads or in soups. And so there's just ways that you can combine these inexpensive, high protein, high nutrient count foods into recipes. And we have so many of them and mostly plants. So in that, we're going to take a quick break and then come back and talk about the hundreds of recipes in Mostly Plants. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back.
Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center, Rockefeller Center, and Macy's Herald Square. Patina is also the exclusive caterer at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium, to galas in the renovated Palm House, and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy a la carte brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lilypool Terrace. Executive chef Morgan Jarrett's unique menu offers warm, distinctive cuisine with a focus on local vegetables, grains, and sustainably sourced meats and fish. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Andrew Friedman, and I'm the host of Andrew Talks to Chefs here on HRN. Every week, I interview a diverse cross-section of the best and biggest names in professional cooking. Give a listen and get to know all about the inner lives of chefs. You can find Andrew Talks to Chefs wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, with the Pollen family. But first, a quick ticket giveaway, because New York City's Taste of the Nation No Kid Hungry, Hungry event is happening this April 17th at the Brooklyn Expo Center. And I have two pairs of tickets to give away. And please contact me at the food scene. That's S-E-E-N uh, via whatever social media you can. So Twitter, uh, Facebook would be great, or Heritage underscore radio. And we'll give you two tickets to go and mingle with New York City's finest tastemakers while enjoying bite-sized fare, craft cocktails, and delectable desserts. And really, what's so great about this event is that it's helping ensure all children in America have access to the nutritious meals they need every day. 100% of proceeds support the No Kid Hungry campaign work to end childhood hunger in America. So follow at No Kid Hungry and uh, nokidhungry.org backslash New York for more information. But back to the, the, the multitude of pollens in the studio today. <laughs> it's like there's more now. <laughs> Kidding. Haven't multiplied. Um, but twins do run in the family. Yes. You never know. Recipes. You know, a cookbook is obviously a collection of great recipes and, and, and great stories around those recipes. Which ones are the most personal to you all? If you were to define yourself from a recipe from this book, which one would you be? Oh, God. Well, I would say, um, well, I'll do two. I'll do the dessert because that's fun, and we haven't talked about desserts at all. A lot of the desserts... Um, or most of them are fruit, also plant-based, fruit and chocolate desserts. But um, banana cream pie was just a favorite dessert of mine growing up, and then it just disappeared. Like, you just can't find it anymore, which is sad. And I didn't get it. <laughs> Where did it go? So we, we came up with a banana cream pie recipe, which is to die for. So I So that sort of reminds me of my childhood, and I also love it a lot. And then I also, there was a restaurant that I really loved in L.A. called Ashe that burnt down and it disappeared. But they had this amazing salmon rice bowl. So we developed a salmon farro bowl. And that one reminds me of that restaurant. And I just always loved that. So that, that is a special recipe to me. I, I, I love the head notes in this. And seeing such a personal connection to these foods. It's not like you guys got together and said, what this world needs right now is another flexitarian cookbook. 
know, you felt like you wanted to give something from your family to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what makes, you know, this truly a special piece of literature. Corky, what, what are your, you know, what are the recipes that project you as a person? I think there's one that I'm very, very uh, attached to. Um, it's a Turkish spiced chicken. And I loved it because it's so, you marinate the chicken overnight, and then it's just so easy to put the whole thing together. And the spice, uh, the flavoring is so intensely wonderful that it, it combines a lot of things that I love. So that's one of my favorites. Another uh, thing that I like mainly also because it's so easy it's a kind of appetizer thing, which are stuffed mushrooms uh, that you use um, uh, the mushrooms and a little uh, parmesan and pesto, and they're so easy to assemble. And when you serve them, they're such a hit. So you get real kind of um, love from uh, <laughs> serving people these appetizers. Yeah, and I feel like easy is a very important thing, especially when you had a household of four children and a pig and other <laughs> animals as well. Lots of them. Um, and now there are many grandchildren as well. So when you all get together, how many pollens are there? There are 21 of us, and it's wonderful because we get together a lot uh, for holidays, but sometimes just for dinners, and it's it's wonderful. And you promise that most of these dishes are 35 minutes and under, right? So when you go to the pollen household and there are 21 of you running around like crazy, food has to be on the table to settle everyone down. Well, they're not all. They're, yep. they're a good portion. <laughs> yeah, <are>. even <laughs> half. That is a lot of pollens <laughs> yes. in one place. Uh, so I can think of two, orchiette pasta with uh, parsley pesto and shredded Brussels sprouts. Number one, because I love pasta. And the other thing is Brussels sprouts, I think, are so great. And I remember such a long time ago, you know, we would basically just boil them. And they really didn't taste good and it smelled pretty bad. <laughs> And there's so much you can do with Brussels sprouts and make them taste really good. And we sort of caramelize them in this dish. And the other thing I'm a little um, obsessed with is pesto. And we have this parsley pesto, which is so good. And it's just another great take on your traditional basil pesto. Um, The other thing that I love is we have a Grandma Mary zucchini cake. And that was from Grandma Mary. And I remember we would visit her when we lived on Long Island. We would go to her house, and she'd always just whip up her zucchini cake. And it was so good. And I just remember it was so moist. And so then when we put this together for the cookbook, it really brought back so many memories of her. It didn't feel like a ruse where you were getting cake and vegetables in one. (laughs) Never. (laughs) But you are getting the benefits and the nutrients from the zucchini. Yeah. It's so hard to pick which are my favorites because it does change all the time. But I think one of my favorite things in the book is the um, vegan ramen soup because I love ramen soup. And it is a little difficult. There's so many ramen restaurants in the city. It's hard to find a vegan or vegetarian broth. And I'm a little bit of a stickler with my broth. So this is really good and um just full of vegetables and tofu. And so right now, that's one of my favorites. And I also have a dessert, 
<laughs> which is the um, West Chisbury carrot cake. And I have to say, I know I'm a little prejudiced, but it's the best carrot cake you'll ever eat. <laughs> yes. See, it's another one. I never felt like that was a ruse, though. Carrot yeah. cake. Okay. never felt like, oh, I eat vegetables for this because it was always about the frosting. Yes. Yeah. But I, I actually love the texture and moisture of carrot cake yeah. that, you know, have good shredded carrots and then raisins in there. Oh, yeah. So... Corky, you were never trying to trick anybody into eating the way that they ate. Oh, never. Oh, no. <laughs> were, were there any dishes that were refused at the table? Oh, liver was not a popular <laughs> one with any of them. Meatloaf. Uh, yeah. Meatloaf, was... yes, yes. Although Michael liked the meatloaf. But you just didn't. Michael who? For him. Michael, I've heard of this other. Michael yeah. Pollan? Yeah. <laughs> heard of this you other one. <laughs> Out of this book, what do you find yourself serving the most? Oh, um, I am using this book like crazy. I'm so glad it's there. That is one of those, I'm not only a customer, but I'm also the president. Or the other way around. <laughs> that was a terrible reference for Hair Club for Men. But <laughs> it's always good to know that an author actually uses their cookbook. Oh, yes. And we use our old one, too, all the time. Yeah, let's talk about the difference between the two, because the the... the the Pollen family table had a hundred of your family's best recipes. Are these new recipes then? How, how is your menu or how has your cooking acumen shifted from one cookbook to the next? Well, most of the recipes for this, some of them are old. Some of them are sort of takes on older recipes. But this was a lot of exploration and coming up with and um, devising new recipes, which was really fun. The first cookbook was we... We had a lot of recipes that we loved, or we each individually had ones that we wanted to share with each other, but that was sort of like a selfish cookbook because we just wanted it, and we wanted to have a place to go where we could remember all of the meals that we loved. And we also wanted to create something that made it easy for people to get dinner on the table for their family with food that, that everybody would enjoy. So those were that was sort of the basis of that cookbook. And because this was so many plant-based recipes, and even the recipes that have fish or have chicken, the majority of the recipe is plant-based. So it was really a sort of a fun um, just experiment in trying to come up with ways of, of saying, I want to do a chicken recipe, but I just want to have a little bit of chicken in this recipe. What else can we do to make it delicious and to sort of extend the recipe or if you don't even want chicken but you want some idea of chicken there and i, I was very drawn to the buffalo cauliflower for that mm -hmm. reason um I, I love buffalo wings i'll admit it and it's <laughs> you know when i was younger i think i was the the kid that used to lick the buffalo sauce off the wing and not really <laughs> like the wing because it wasn't cooked that well um th this sounds like such a great convergence of well the popularity of cauliflower but uh bridging meat eaters into a world where they don't have to necessarily have the meat. Right. And we also realize that the traditional way that those are made, not only is it fried mm -hmm. pieces of, I don't even know what it is. It's not really wings. It's not, I, I can't figure out that meat in there. But um, so, so you take out the fried part, but also traditionally the hot sauce that are used is used for that is extremely salty and not very good for you. So we we also tried to play with that, of the ingredients in it, to make it a little bit more healthy. Not only that it's cauliflower, but also that the um, ingredients used are more sort of healthy. Let's talk about salt, because one of my favorite parts of this whole book is how to 
make any dish taste better. It is those tips on if something's too sweet, too spicy, too sour. Um, how, how did you all learn to adjust like that? Uh, because you're all cooking for, I mean, you all have multiple children. Um, you're cooking for a lot of different mouths at once. How do you, cooking, how do you cook something that's democratic? Um, I mean, I would say definitely trial and error, and we can still make mistakes because that's what cooks do. Um, but I just think of years of cooking and yeah, all of a sudden, you know, you make a dish and oh God, I put in too many like red pepper flakes. My son's not going to eat it. All right. So let me put in a little dairy or I'll put in a little sweetener or, you know, you come up with tricks along the way, um, to make the dish how you want it to be. And hopefully you can do that and you don't have to throw it away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's such a smart foundational basis for all these recipes that they're easy to follow. They're easy to make. Um, but they start bringing in a lot of different cultural references too that some people might not be accustomed to. Um, one of my favorites that kind of blurs that line in a wonderful way is the crispy kimchi and sky and pancake. Because you got a little Korea, you got a little China, um, <laughs> and you definitely have like New York Jews in Chinatown. <laughs> That's what I am, and I just know that my order is a sky and pancake. That is the meter for any Chinese restaurant mm -hmm. in New exactly. York for me. Yeah. So. Yes, and sometimes when you order them, because we love them too, and, and you tend to find more often the scallion pancakes, and in some of the Korean restaurants you can find the kimchi pancakes, and we thought a combination was perfect, often they're very fried. And so we wanted to make a healthier version of it, and we wanted to put both in, you know, up the vegetable ante. And, and kimchi is so tasty and delicious and fermented food, which is good for you. And I mean, in the recipe you see, each time you cook one of the pancakes, it's a you know quarter or half of a teaspoon of um, a tablespoon of oil that you use. So they're just not that dripping oil, but they're so flavorful and tasty that you don't miss it. That is definitely dog-eared as well as bookmarked on in the book. See all your yeah. uh, another one that actually was more of a throwback was uh, this Tex-Mex uh, vegan vegan taco salad bowl. Uh, I used to love ordering those and I'd eat the whole crispy taco bowl, but nothing in the center of it. So <laughs> why, why bring back this, you know, thing of the eighties, nineties? Uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that, um, I mean, I always loved those salad bowls. So, you know, why not try to take the things that you love, the things that you remember and just put a healthier spin on it. And um, it was so easy to make that one vegan. And, you know, obviously you need the crunch of the tortilla. So instead of getting the bowl of the fried tortilla, we just decided to see if it, it would be as satisfying if you baked them. So we did. We cut them into little strips, baked them, and it just adds that crunch that you want, but it's just a very little amount of it. How did you update things like the New York chop salad? With that... I think um, we still have the chicken in it and a little of the bacon in it and just um, really added a lot more vegetables to the whole combination. And somehow the flavors just bounce off one another and it's so delicious. It's a whole dinner meal also. Uh, salad as dinner is great, especially in the summer, summer months. See, I become wary when I see uh, a vegetable replace for a meat. But how do you do it so well with 
your vegetarian French onion soup gratiné? Like, uh, how are you able to coax someone into maybe turning to the vegetable side of things? You know, growing up, uh, Quirky would make onion soup gratiné with the, I guess, the beef stock, and we loved it. It was so delicious. It was cheesy. It was the delicious, you know, baguette on the top, and. We thought, wouldn't this be great to make this vegetarian? Because we miss this soup, especially Lori and I are vegetarian. And we just, you know, caramelized tons of onions and used vegetable broth. And it came out so well and comes out so well that you would never think it was vegetarian. I mean, that's one of my favorites. Yeah, I mean, you had mentioned the ramen before. And um, my wife doesn't really eat meat so when we go out for ramen trying to find that option is a very hard thing hard. we we know so you and i will have to talk after the okay. show I have, I have a very good vegetarian ramen broth that I oh good okay. um what, what are some of the other ones that you miss as meat eaters that you want a vegetable replacement for hmm, that's a good question um I think sometimes in a salad, you know, there's so many kinds of salads, like the New York chop salad and a Waldorf salad, that I think that to make a meal out of a salad, which, like Corky said, I love to do that in the summertime. It's kind of my go-to. But you need some substance with it, and you just don't want to eat so much cheese. So I think that doing things like the chickpeas and the um, Parmesan chickpeas, um, or just roasting them with spices like we have for the Buddha bowl and any other kind of bean or seeds are a great replacement and they satisfy that need for kind of more heartiness vegetable nachos mapa dofu i mean those are two things that you know I, pork and then chili on top i mean yes you can go beans with nachos but you still make these things so savory and, and delicious uh, again your children any pushback from any of them about you know, only eating the one version of it, or do they not even know uh, what you knew about, you know, the meaty, the fried, the the this version of something that was a prior life? I mean, my kids all really love vegetables, so it was never, a, a, you know, sort of forcing them to try to eat vegetables. What's great about dishes like the ones that you're discussing, like the vegetable nachos, is the other thing that's nice about it is it just makes the entire meal in one dish. So it's not like you have a big bowl of nachos and then you have to think about what's going to be your vegetable and what's going to be your, you know, you have the protein from the beans and then you have just this cornucopia of vegetables on top of it. And it's very satisfying. That's, that's actually one of my kids' favorites. So, and I don't think that they miss the meat in that. I mean, that, that is the magic word or phrase. Less dishes means more enjoyment for me, you know, <laughs> exactly. always. Exactly. But I, I also love the idea of sheet pan meals because there are quadrants. And if you have, you know, X amount of people, you can, you know, top them differently and they can just <laughs> eat from their side. So I, the, are you still making meals for multiple people in your family or does everyone come and eat what's at the center of the table? Yes, I think we still make, um, no, not multiple for, say, uh, different dishes for different kids. We do make the same dish for everyone at the table, and we keep um, multiplying the ingredients. And that's the nice thing also with the sheet pan dinners. You can put in two sheet pans if it's a big crowd, and it feeds a lot. 
And I was going to ask, how do you pass along these recipes? But you wrote a book about it. So <laughs> that is a very easy way to do it. But wh what is the greater message you're trying to pass along as, as people, not just, you know, as as cooks or family members? Um, what is the biggest takeaway from Mostly Plants? Uh, oh, I think for me, uh, and I think for many people, they try to do things that are helpful for the environment and maybe you bring along a market bag when you go shopping. You're careful about the amount of water you use when you shower. And with eating this way, as an individual, you can do so much. And if each of us were eating this way, we could make such a real, um, have such a real effect on the environment. So for me, that is one of the things I'm eager to pass along with this book. I forget what section it was in, but it said something about how industrial meat production has democratized this luxury through fast food. I wonder whether or not vegetables will follow suit. Not necessarily the same path, but can we get to a place where vegetables have been not necessarily industrialized, but made plentiful enough that they will be the fast casual grab over a burger. Well, you, I don't know if you saw, I think it's this Burger King who now has their vegetable burger. <laughs> Which is the impossible whopper. Yes. Um, I mean, listen, it would be great if everyone was eating mostly plants most of the time, you know, as long as it can all be produced in a sustainable and healthy way. So I guess that's the key there farmers markets but you'll see organic produce at target and walmart these days too i know it's great so the access is certainly growing um and maybe there's a little bit of price differential from you know the, the the standard to the organic but how important is it for someone to be reaching for better produce like you said the farmers market is really the best because then you're getting the in season and you're getting really healthy ripe really delicious produce. Um, you know, we always opt for organic or local, sort of seeing what's available at the time. Um, but in-season is key because you can get, you know, if something's in-season, you can also often get the organic choice as well. But we're very mindful of that. You know, and again, when I do my shopping, I'll see what there's an abundance of what's in-season. And usually... A lot of times I'll dictate what I'm going to cook based on what's available. And what are you all cooking tonight? I think we're having Roberta's pizza. <laughs> that sounds great. Sometimes it's wonderful not to cook. You're correct. But if you want to cook like the pollens, get mostly plants out everywhere today. 101 delicious flexitarian recipes from the pollen family. And I love how you let... Michael write a forward because he might have felt left out or something. Like that. Exactly. And you said you have 21 in the family? Yes. Yes. You do a head count during yes, dinners? We, we, to set the table, you have we to have know how many people you're setting yes. for. So if That's I bring true. my own setting, you might not know that I showed up. We're going to let you yeah. in. <laughs> You've got an invitation. Excellent. I appreciate yes, it. And Thank Passover is coming up. It is. It is. We're ready. One. Thank you so much for oh. being on air and writing this very important book. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Thank you to our sponsor, Patina Events, Music by Cookies, and Matt Engineer. 
Matt Patterson Engineering. One other quick note about the ticket giveaway. If you do not win the tickets, we have two pairs. Again, reach us at at Food Scene uh, and the Food Scene on, on Facebook and Twitter or Heritage underscore Radio. You can use Food Scene, S-E-N 20, for 20% off your tickets. And this event is happening on April 17th. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.